It's Wednesday, June 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. One thing that has eluded the U.S. during the coronavirus pandemic is accurate counting of cases and deaths. Every state counts the numbers differently, despite guidelines from the CDC to count both lab-confirmed cases and probable cases of COVID-19. The goal is to get accurate national statistics that inform public health decision-making. Beth Reinhardt, an investigative reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for how cases are counted. Next, the pandemic has led to the fastest rise in food prices in more than 40 years, and consumers are on the hunt for more value. Shutdowns at meat processing plants, increased costs for labor and transportation, and a pullback on promotions at grocery stores all contributed to the price raises. Annie Gasparro, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for why your grocery bill is so high. Finally, all eyes are on police departments to enact some type of reforms to end police brutality. Some departments have already begun to ban chokeholds and require authorization to use crowd control measures with less than lethal weapons. Louise Matsakis, writer at Wired, joins us for more on these non-lethal weapons and the serious harm they can do. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The CDC recommended that states should start counting these probable cases and deaths. And slowly, several states started to do that. It immediately increased their tallies in a way that that's become sort of, as you said earlier, controversial in some ways. Joining us now is Beth Reinhard, investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Beth. Happy to be here. One of the things that have eluded us here in the United States and really around the world when it comes to coronavirus have been the numbers and the exact number of cases and deaths. It's been different all over the board. And you recognize it quickly. I mean, if you look at some news, they always have the counter up in the corner saying how many people have coronavirus, COVID-19, and how many deaths are associated with it. But really what's going on is that half the states in the country right now are following the federal recommendations by the CDC to count both the actual deaths, confirmed tests that were done with the lab test, and probable cases and probable deaths. There's this mishmash of accounting that's going on with it. Beth, tell us a little bit more about this. I didn't realize this, but probable cases and probable deaths are part of routine public health data collection in H1N1, in the flu pandemic, in chickenpox, all sorts of diseases, every disease you can think of. It is routine for epidemiologists to count probable cases and deaths when testing is not available, but the person is showing all the signs of an infection. And there are very specific criteria for each of these illnesses. So in April, as the COVID-19 death toll started to mount, and as everyone knows, testing was very limited back then. And unlike any other outbreak before, you had people dropping dead at an alarming rate, much worse than H1N1 or any other previous disease. And so the CDC recommended that states should start counting these probable cases and deaths. And slowly, several states started to do that. It immediately increased their tallies in a way that that's become sort of, as you said earlier, 
controversial in some ways that some people are arguing that the numbers are inflated, but the wide consensus among public health experts is that there is an undercount. And as states are struggling to count these probable cases, you're seeing a big reason for that undercount. Less than half the states are doing it. A lot of the states that aren't doing it are some of the very big states with lots and lots of cases like California and Florida and New York. So those states that already have pretty large tallies, it's hard to imagine, but their tallies would go up even higher. So you really have states counting. Ideally, in disease surveillance, you have states counting illnesses the same way, apples to apples comparison, so to speak, right? But in this case, we found states counting apples, oranges, bananas, all sorts of ways. And so it's very inconsistent across state lines. To that point, some are counting lab confirmed cases. Others are counting the cases and the probable cases. Some are tracking the probable cases, but not reporting them to the CDC. Some are tracking the probable cases and putting them on their website and making sure there's a distinction between. So everybody's reporting something different. And it's so difficult to get one consensus on the burden. I kept noticing it in in your reporting, the burden of COVID-19 on the country. So what kind of information you can get about the death toll in your state really depends on where you live. And what that health department has decided to do, what their capabilities are in terms of tracking disease, how underfunded or outdated their data collection may be, which is one of the problems that we learned is holding a lot of states back and doing a better job. We heard a lot at the beginning of the pandemic. We never prepare for these kind of things until it's time to do so. And and this is part of it, like the money to be able to count deaths and cases, which is really basic information, right? And that information is part of what is being used to make serious decisions about whether to reopen states and to what degree. People are making decisions every day. Do I get my hair cut? Do I wear a mask? So as you pointed out, those case counts that are on TV all the time, those really inform people's perception of the disease. Has somebody said something specific for why they're not including probable cases? be fair, they're really drowning in terms of the demands of responding to this pandemic. They've never had to post these kind of updates in real time as basically we are demanding these accurate counts. And obviously, there's just such a range of challenges that they're facing, testing and and all of that. So, you know, it's fair for states, I think, to say, look, we've kind of got our hands full and we just haven't been able to get around to it. However, it's problematic. It leads to these inconsistencies and undercounts. So we did hear a number of states say we would like to do it. We plan to do it. We just haven't gotten around to it. That was one of the explanations we heard. But what was also interesting is in the states that are doing it, we heard from health directors saying it wasn't even a question. Like it was just a matter of like, how do we do it? How fast can we get it done? And health officials in those states also talk about how much better they feel about their numbers, that they're much more accurately capturing the scope of the pandemic. So it just kind of begs the question, well, then what's happening in those other states? Beth Reinhardt, investigative reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. There was this sharp increase, and that has really caused concern because consumers are dealing with that at the same time that their jobs are more uncertain or their income is already low. Joining us now is Annie Gasparro, 
reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Annie. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about one of the interesting things that came out of the coronavirus pandemic. Food prices have gone pretty high right now, and consumers are starting to look for value. They're starting to look for different packaging. They're starting to go to different stores, hunting for that value. Because, you know, what's happening, obviously, we've been keeping an eye on what's going on with the economy. A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people are claiming unemployment benefits, but their grocery bills remained the same. Uh, or maybe even more people are cooking more at home because they're not going out as much. And they're finding out that these prices have risen a bunch. So Annie, tell us a little bit about these food prices. We saw a pretty sharp increase in the middle of March and April. It peaked in late April. And even at the end of May, prices were still over 7% higher than the same week the year before in 2019. So there was this sharp increase. And that has really caused concern because consumers are dealing with that at the same time that their jobs are more uncertain or their income is already low because of unemployment or underemployment. Yeah, I just had this conversation just this past weekend, got together with a small group just for a little barbecue. And we're talking about the meat prices, all the stuff that we're getting for the barbecue and the meat prices in particular have gone up. And we've heard stories about the meat packing plants and how they've been affected by coronavirus through illnesses and then also having to scale back production. And it's been a whole thing with the meat packing plants. So that's one of the things in particular that has gone up really high. We have seen those issues sort of trickle down to the consumer in the form of higher prices. And even as the companies and the meatpacking plants resolve some of those supply shortages, they have had to implement expensive safety measures. They have had to get more safety equipment, hire additional labor, slow down certain lines, which makes their factories less efficient. And this is all making the cost of doing business higher and that leads to higher prices. Transportation and logistical costs for food makers are rising. A lot of air traffic is canceled. There was an example you had in your article of this company that makes a protein drink, and they mm -hmm. had to charter a plane to go get their main ingredient. They had to charter the plane to get it from Ireland specifically because that's part of their product. But those are the lengths that they had to go to to continue operating. So this company was on a video chat and they were trying to decide, do we take this risk? Do we spend this exorbitant amount of money to charter a flight for this protein? Like we have to decide that now in this 24 hour period, if we're going to make that huge bet that we will be able to offset that cost in some way or just shoulder it and have their margin go down. So they're all having to make these really tough decisions because they don't want to raise prices for consumers, but they also don't want their margin to go down. And from the retailer's perspective, they don't want people to stop coming there to their store and start going to the dollar store for their food. And grocery costs rose a lot too, because a lot of these supermarkets pulled back on the discounts that they apply. And I didn't know this. They usually applied the discounts and promotions to about a third of the items that they sell. So they had to pull back on all of those things. So that also increased the cost for a lot of people. We saw with 
the promotions that one of the reasons they didn't do it was because demand was already so high. So why bother with a promotion? But also just because they didn't have enough food. So they already were out of stock on most things. How do you offer a two for one deal on something that's already out of stock? So (laughs) that was another reason there weren't a lot of promotions during the majority of the crisis through April and May. And now into June, we are starting to see that come back a little bit, but that promotional level is still at like 23% instead of 32% is the normal. So it's definitely not back up to those normal levels. And that is a big reason for the price increases. You have the meat shortages contributing largely, you have the lack of promotions, and then just the higher cost of doing business And that's all led to this increase that in April was the biggest monthly increase that the government data has shown since 1974. So what is the outlook like, at least for the near future? It still seems to be that these prices will be high for some time to come. We have heard from manufacturers and retailers that they are trying to combat this by offering more deals like we were talking about and different packaging sizes. So sometimes that's more family sizes that it's a lower price per ounce. And sometimes it's little to-go packs that are a lower price point overall. But this combination, they're all trying to strike the right balance. And we really will see this shake out a lot this summer because so far the higher prices have not hurt the retailers or the food makers because restaurants are still largely closed to in-restaurant dining. So a lot of people are still going to the grocery store. These products are still in such high demand. Plus, everybody still has this stimulus money that they're working through or the bonus with unemployment. And as people get through their stimulus and as the unemployment bonuses expire, then we'll start to really see the true impact that these higher prices have on people. Annie Gasparro, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I think that what a lot of people don't understand is that these are not innocuous tools, right? They can still harm. They might not be as lethal as, you know, live rounds of ammunition, but that doesn't mean that they can't kill you. Joining us now is Louise Matsakis, writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Louise. Thanks for having me. As calls continue to grow around the country for police reforms, all eyes are on states and cities and what they can do to end police brutality. And while there are wider calls for defunding police and and really big sweeping police reforms, you know, a lot of them are going to start doing smaller things, actions that they can get done right away. For example, the LAPD just instructed their officers not to use carotid restraints. These are chokeholds that restrict or block blood flow to the brain. In Minneapolis, the city council already voted to ban the police department from using chokeholds. They would be required to report other officers they see using chokeholds and also to intervene in such cases. Also, something passed just recently in Minneapolis, too. The police chief must authorize the use of crowd control weapons such as rubber bullets and tear gas. And this is something that we saw a lot when the protests first started, police using less than lethal rounds, they call them, crowd control weapons like pepper spray, tear gas, and rubber bullets. But oftentimes, these less than lethal rounds can also be very dangerous. Louise, tell us a little bit about these non-lethal weapons and how they can cause some serious harm. 
So these crowd control weapons, as they're referred to by researchers, are not uh, well understood. They're not extensively researched, which is really surprising to me because they're so widespread around the world. So what we've been seeing in the U.S. recently is tear gas protesters in Washington, D.C., who were tear gassed to make room for Donald Trump to take photos. We've seen a lot of rubber bullets. Um, there's at least two people I'm aware of who have lost their eyes as a result of getting hit with rubber bullets. Yeah, it's really disturbing uptick in police violence. Um, and I think that what a lot of people don't understand is that these are not innocuous tools, right? They can still harm. They might not be as lethal as, you know, live rounds of ammunition, but that doesn't mean that they can't kill you. They're called kinetic impact projectiles, KIPs. Let's start off with rubber bullets specifically. Often they're not even made with rubber. There's mixtures of either hard plastic and foam or metal and foam. Tell us a little bit about those. I talked to a researcher who put together a report on these KPIs, and she was explaining to me that, yeah, rubber bullets is actually kind of a misnomer. These They can be made of hard foam or metal encased in rubber. So they're supposed to be a little bit softer, but they're still really hard. You know, this is not like getting hit with a paintball. This is not like getting hit with a Nerf gun. It's much more harmful than that. And it can give you extensive bruising at close range. It can actually break skin. You know, we've seen people like a reporter in LA who his uh, you know, neck was bleeding because he got hit with a rubber bullet. Um, really disturbing you know, cases here. And they're all shaped differently. I saw some that are kind of very blunt. It looks more like a cone uh, with a blue rubber on top. There's others that look like a, a foam stopper with a hard plastic backing. And there's other ones that have more of an oval shape. Uh, they're all different depending on what part of the country I, uh, you're in, I'm assuming. And uh, because of that odd shape and all of that too, they're not as accurate. Exactly. When these projectiles are shot through a gun and they go through a barrel, unlike a traditional bullet, which would have a straight path, these weapons tend to tumble in the air. So their path is really unpredictable. So it's kind of two problems. If you shoot these from too close, it could be lethal. You know, if you shoot them in the eye, they could go blind, uh, you could break skin. But if you back up, you start to lose accuracy. And then if you try and, you know, say shoot a crowd in the legs, you might accidentally actually shoot them in the eye and that person still loses their eye. There's really, you know, researchers have said that there's really not a safe way to use these tools on a crowd. Let's talk about tear gas because we've seen that used a lot. Also kind of a misnomer. It's not actually a gas. It's mostly just like powders that disperse through the air as a mist. Exactly. They come in, in these aerosol canisters. And again, there's kind of two separate issues there. The first one is that the canisters themselves are these projectiles. And we saw at least one person who lost an eye because they got hit with one of the canisters. It's not even the, the tear gas itself. But the tear gas, you know, when it comes into your eyes and your nose and your mouth, it causes, you know, coughing fits, sneezing fits, which obviously are particularly troublesome right now because of the coronavirus pandemic. So there's a lot of concerns that the use of tear gas could help perpetuate cases of COVID-19 and make the pandemic worse. If you have underlying respiratory conditions, it can be really dangerous. And researchers say that the scariest thing about tear gas is when it's deployed either in closed areas, like inside a house. We've seen cases where actually tear gas has been deployed inside prisons, which is really disturbing, but areas where people can't flee. But yeah, tear gas is you know, often you know, thought of as, oh, it's just this way to disperse a crowd. You know, it's okay. People cough for a couple of minutes. It's fine, but that's really not true. And even if people are allowed to flee, you know, it causes temporary blindness. You're extremely disoriented. These tools are really not safe. I hope that one of the consequences of these protests is that there's more accountability about how these tools are used and when. There's not a lot of information about 
their safety. What are the manufacturers promising to police departments? You know, they promise that everyone's going to be safe and then we see people get blinded. So I hope that there's more accountability about how these tools are used as a result of what's happened in the last few days. Louise Metsakis, writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Vixen Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.